Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. If I can get you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. We'll prepare for our sermon, but before we do, I just want to say, wow. Wow, I cannot wait for tonight, Glenn. The choir, y'all in the other room, be here tonight because you're going to do that song again tonight, right? Oh my goodness, that was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And, and listen, while everybody did great, I, today the, the men... Golly. And listen, I just want, I think we've got them on like testosterone boosters all through the week because you were, oh, wow. So today we continue with our study of Exodus, or all of the book of Exodus. And today we find ourselves in the 19th chapter and, and what a chapter this is. So far in our exploration of this entire book, we have gone through two major sections in the book of Exodus, and now we have come to the third. The first section is the first 15 chapters in which we see how God liberates an enslaved people. And after that, Exodus 16, 17, and 18, we see a period of questioning. We call it the the wilderness sojourn. They've been set free, but are they sure they really want it? Because now, yes, it's one thing to be set free from the bondage to Pharaoh, but it's another thing to learn new patterns of life. It's another thing to learn a new rhythm of life in which you you somehow have to learn a new kind of submission. Not to Pharaoh and the life-taking task of brick-making all day long but a submission to the God who says, I will care for your every need, but this is a day-by-day-by-day journey. You have to trust me in the morning, trust me at noonday, trust me at night, trust me. And this Exodus 16, 17, 18 is a period of time like we all experience in which we are not so sure we are really ready for that kind of relinquishment of our lives. And now we come to Exodus 19. The third major portion of the book of Exodus is Exodus 19 through 23, the establishment of the covenant of the people. They become a covenant people in Exodus 19 through 23. And next month, we're going to begin um, deeply. In fact, next week, into the the Ten Commandments, one week at a time per commandment. But these these three chapters, or four chapters, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, these chapters represent the apex. They stand at the center of the book of Exodus, and they stand as the apex of the entire experience. This is where they became a people. And we begin reading in Exodus 19, verse 1. At the new moon the third new moon after the israelites had gone out of the land of egypt 
On that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered into the wilderness of Sinai, and camped at the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Well, then Moses went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I, I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if, if you obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is the reading of the sacred word. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. This morning, I want to talk for just a few moments as we make our way to the table. On our way to the table, I want us to move in three movements toward the table, and they are these. If then, then now, now what? If then, then now, now what? Will you pray with me? And now, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts simply be found acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you will now bless the words that proceed from my mouth so that we hear something far better, far wiser, far deeper than simply the words of one man. We pray that your spirit would speak, that we all may be transformed. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, amen. Amen. If, then. Of all of the Bible, all of the stories that are told, all the movements, all the songs that are sung, all the poems that are recited, all of the letters that are written, if there is one place in all the Bible where the people of Israel become a people, the greatest place to understand the, the peopling of the people of Israel is clearly in the Old Testament, right? We know that. But of all the Old Testament, the people become a people really in the first five books, the Torah or the, the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But out of all five books of the Torah, it's really about Exodus, and if we really want to understand where the people become a people, it's, it's not only in Exodus, but of all 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, it's really chapters 19 through 23, the building of a covenant together. 
But if you really want to understand where the rubber hits the road, if you really want to understand where it really all comes together, it's out of 19 through 23, it's really 19. And in chapter 19, out of all 25 verses found in chapter 19, is really, in my opinion, verse 4 and 5. But out of verse 4 and 5, of all the words that are written in verse 4 and 5, it's really one word. If. If. Verse 4 begins this way. We heard it a moment ago. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession out of all the peoples. Now, that fourth verse that we just read, I bore you on eagles' wings. You know how I did this. This is the Lord speaking. I came to you, and there was nothing that you did to earn it. I came to you out of sheer grace, out of sheer mercy, not because you were good, but because I was good. Verse 4 is about God demonstrating to the people, look, I rescued you from the hand of Pharaoh, not because you earned it or could prove yourself, but because I wanted to prove myself. I bore you on the wings of eagles. That is called grace. And before we go another syllable further in this worship service today, I want somebody here to know this. I know that there is somebody on campus today, either here in this room, watching online, or in our family life center. I know there is somebody who has attempted all your life to earn love. All your life. If I can do the right thing, earn the right amount, look the right way, if I can abide with the right people, move in the right place, have the right job, I can maybe prove myself worthy of some kind of love or acceptance. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to work anymore. I'm here to tell you that the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of this table, means that there was nothing that you ever did or could ever do to warrant the measure of God's mercy that's been poured out over your life. I've said it before and I'll say it again. God is crazy about you and there's nothing you can do about it. God is crazy about you. And that's not because of you, it's because of God. And here in verse 4, he says, remind them, Moses, remind them that I, I bore them on, on eagles' wings and they didn't deserve it, but I did it. So if, he says, you Hear my voice and keep my covenant. Now the word, therefore, if you obey, if you obey my voice, my command, if you obey my voice, the word in Hebrew is shama. Shama is a derivative of shema, to, to hear something. But shama means to really hear something. It means to hear something crystal clear. It's as if he says to Moses, tell them, if you really are hearing what I'm telling you, I mean, if you really pay attention to what I'm saying, I rescued you for no good reason. And if you obey my covenant, you will be for me a treasured people. And right there, we get introduced to what theologians refer to as the Deuteronomic principle. 
The Deuteronomic principle is like a $5 word that I challenge you to use at lunch somewhere today. But the Deuteronomic principle is this. It begins to emerge in chapter 19, but it really comes onto the scene in the book of Deuteronomy and all through the early prophets. And it basically goes like this. The writers who put all of these sacred stories into written form, they begin to tell these stories in a kind of formulaic pattern. And it sounds like this again and again and again. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. And early on, right here, he's talking to Moses and says, this is a brand new situation for you. I've rescued you, but now I'm going to make a people out of you. But here's how it works. If, 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 if you really hear what it is I'm asking of you and you obey my covenant, you will be for me a a treasured possession. But it hangs on if. We pick up in chapter 19, verse 5. Listen to these words. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. I mean, he says, Let this, let's get this thing clear. The whole thing belongs to me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? The whole thing is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Now, I love these words. There are some powerful words there, that combination, that whole bundle of words. Priestly kingdom, holy nation. Priestly kingdom, holy nation. Do you know half of those words are theological words? Half of those words are political words. Half of those words, priestly, holy, describe divine activity. And half of those words, kingdom, nation, describe earthly activity earthly domains and dominions he says to them i want to establish something brand new in you a priestly kingdom and a holy nation first priestly kingdom what does it mean to be a priest even in the ancient mind even unto this very day to priest means in some ways to stand in between divinity and humanity to stand at the, 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 the breach between heaven and earth, the priest does that work. The priest conveys grace from God into the earth. right? And the priest intercedes on behalf of the people to God who abides above the earth. These are the ancient ways of thinking. Even today, though, if you go anywhere where there is a priest functioning, the very posture in which they take to do their work each day even speaks symbolically of their job. For example, you even see me at times when I pray on behalf of you. I'll, I'll hold my hands sometimes up. The ancient priests were instructed to hold their hands, palms up, as if to say, now in this moment, I'm speaking on behalf of humankind and I'm interceding, Heavenly Father, that you would hear our cry. Palms up, I'm interceding. See? But then, at the end of a service, a priest may give a benediction and the palms go down as if to posture the priest's own body in a way that says, now I am imparting blessing to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord uh, be gracious to you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. See how that works? There's this posturing. There's this linchpinning between heaven and earth. And now you and I as Baptist people understand that we don't need any intermediary between us and God, right? 
We believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. We believe that God created you to access you without anything interfering between you and God. And that means that you can pray to God without anybody's help. You can access God on your own. But that means that we get to operate as a, as a priesthood of believers. If you believe, then you are a priest. That means we get to priest one another. That means priests, believers, are those who understand that we have, we have the presence and the action of God within our own lives. Now, it's not fair. It's, it's crazy. It sounds absurd. That's kind of a reckless kind of love, if you ask me. But Paul said it. Paul said we've got this treasure in clay jars. That means you and I, as priests, have abiding within us the presence and the action of God. So when we priest one another, we're conveying God's grace imparting God's peace, imparting God's mercy to one another. We share it with one another as we listen to God speak to Moses. He says to Moses, I want to create something new, a kingdom of priests. I want to create a priestly kingdom so that it redefines how and why you exist in the world because my life is active and present in your life and as such, then your life in the world means that you are imparting grace and mercy and God's own character into a hurting world. You, you can priest the world. I don't want to bring you out of Egypt simply to create in you Egypt 2.0. I'm setting you out different than the rest of the world. That's why it's not only that God wants to create a kingdom, a realm, a domain of priests who invoke grace and share grace, receive grace and, and let it pass on through, but he wants, as the text says, to create not just a kingly, a priestly kingdom, but a holy nation. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart, to be different, to not look like your neighbor's. To not create a nation that looks like the neighboring nation. So he says to Israel, I brought you out of one nation, but I didn't bring you out here to create Egypt 2.0. I'm up to something different so that you in this world can be holy just as I am holy. We read about it in Leviticus this way. For I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, I have created a way for you to exist in the world in such a way that your life mirrors the holiness of my own life. That means you have to really hear, I bore you up on eagle's wings, you didn't deserve it, but I brought you here so that in you there can be forged something different than the world. You can know me so intimately that when you live in the world and breathe in the world and exist in the world, it's as if when your neighbors look at you, they see a reflection of me. I am up to something, creating a priestly kingdom and a holy nation in you. This is why we read in Micah uh, chapter 6, verse 3. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? In other words, we are called to walk alongside the God who walks alongside the world. 
You walk alongside the God who walks alongside the world. And as you walk alongside the God who walks alongside the world, guess what happens? You are transformed into looking and thinking and being and believing and acting more like the one who brought you out of Egypt. And why would God be up to doing that? Why would God spend God's time well, because of what we read in Micah chapter 4. Listen to these words. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. Peoples shall stream to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Beloved, here's the beauty. God calls Moses to call the people out so that they can be free. This whole sermon series called Exodus has had a subtitle all along the way, right? It's Exodus, Freed to Be. They were being freed in order to be a demonstration of God's own presence and character and action in the world. But everything hangs on if. If you behave like I behave in the world, then you can be called by my name. But in the day, when you behave in a way that is contradictory to my character, then drop the title. See, that moves us from if, then, to then, now. Then, now. See, the temptation that we all have is we read these ancient texts, and we assume that this stuff happened so long ago, it's about ancient Israel, the chosen people, and it's an ancient text, and we respect it, but it's really not applicable to you and me, like really, right here and right now. But that, my friends, is... Is the mystery. That, that my friends, is the, is the myth. It, this is our story. Do you know that this whole language of, I want you to be a, a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. I want you to, to live in the world in such a way as to convey the grace and the character and the mercy of my own character and grace and mercy. That lives on in the New Testament. Because when First and Second Peter are written, the writer of First and Second Peter uses those images as the dominant theme to help describe what it means to understand Jesus. In First Peter, we read it this way. He says, but you are a chosen race. Now, stop right there for just a minute. Who? Not ancient Israel. He's not talking to ancient Israel. He's not talking to Rome. He's... To, He's talking about all those who have yielded their life to Jesus Christ. All those who have seen the saving power of God through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and have submitted their lives to him. All of you, he says. You're, you're, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Listen to the language. He reaches back to Exodus and he tugs forward from Exodus into his New Testament writing, one of the latest writings that we have in all the New Testament. Some believe late into the uh, second century it may have been formed. He brings into the second century this ancient image. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. God's own people. 
And the verse continues, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night light. Do you know what he's doing here? The writer of first and second Peter is doing with the Jesus event, the whole life cycle of Jesus. He's doing with Jesus what the ancient writer of Exodus did for the people of Israel. He's saying, you've been saved. You have been rescued. You didn't deserve it, but you were brought out of the darkness to walk in the glorious light, and you did nothing to qualify yourself. He has saved you, redeemed you, and why? So that you, through your life, can demonstrate his marvelous acts of power and mercy. So that you, through your words, your actions, can demonstrate what it looks like to have been rescued by God. And this, my friends, is where... ah. This is where it all comes down to it. You and I, just like the people of ancient Israel, have been given a command. The ancient Israelites were said to, to have followed this covenant, and if you follow this covenant, if, 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 then you will be. Well, on the night that Jesus was crucified or arrested, on the night when he broke bread with his followers, he gave a commandment too, a brand new commandment. On the night when he looked into the eyes of his closest friends and followers, he offered these words. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And right there is our big if-then. See, if you and I choose to love one another the way he loved us, then we can be called by his name. But in the day that we choose not to love as he loved, well, then we need to drop the title. So this is where the dividing line usually comes because there are so many of us, so many of us who are Christian in title only. We do the thing, we check the box, we go to the service, we do the, what you do. But when we come out of those waters of baptism and we say, Jesus is Lord, what that means, it ties us back to the very first century. That's the first confession of faith. It ties us into the believers in the first century who also believed that Jesus ought to shape every element of our existence. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, then the Lordship of Jesus Christ has a shaping power in every realm of your human existence. That means Jesus becomes the interpretive lens through which you see everything that happens to you and around you in the world. He ought to shape everything you think, you believe, everything you do, everything you say, everything you post, everything you tweet. It is He and He alone. He is the one through whom we see all of life's events, including the events that happen all around us all the time. I'll give you an example. We say here all the time, and I've been saying it in one form or fashion <clears throat> for 25 years of ministry, <clears throat> and for about five and a half years here as your pastor, I've said, church is a politics-free zone. And we cherish a zone in which on your way in, you leave partisan politics at the door. And that's partly because, well, no party has ultimate truth. And sisters and brothers here have dividing or, or differing opinions about all kinds of things. When we walk in here, we're up to a different kind of business. So we leave our partisan politics at the door because when we come in here, we are shaped by one thing only. 
The teachings of Jesus Christ, the life, death, burial, or resurrection of the beloved Son, we are shaped in such a way that our, our imagination is provoked, our minds are transformed, our hearts are melted because we recognize how much has been given to us. We're shaped by that. So we leave our partisan politics at the door when we come in. But here's the rub. When we go out, we don't leave Jesus at the door. We can't check him at the door on the way out. And so if, if, if we mean anything by what we say in here when we say, Jesus is Lord, he's in charge of my life, I take my cues from Jesus, that means when you leave this place, everything that happens in your life and in my life must be seen through the interpretive lens of Jesus Christ. That means everything that happens in our nation and world, everything that you think and believe and tweet and post... That means it, it shapes, knowing Jesus shapes what you think about abortion, shapes what you think about gay marriage, it should shape what you think about health care and the environment, it should shape what you think about immigration, which we've been talking a lot about this week. The truth is, when we are impacted by big events in the world like we are constantly being impacted by from, from day to day, then the Christian must leave this place and take Jesus with her and with him in order to say, now Jesus, this thing has happened. What would you have me think about this thing that's happened? What do you want me to believe about the conversations going on around the nation and the world? What do you think about it? What would you do about it? What would you say about it? How do you interpret it, Jesus? How do you think of the things that are unfolding in this, your world that you love so much? Because I want to take my cues from you and no one else. And when we do that, beloved, then... We may still come out at different ends of the spectrum. We still may say, yeah, we've all checked our things with Jesus and we still disagree and that's fine. But you cannot, you cannot, you cannot espouse a belief or an action or a moment or a movement without checking it through Jesus, without baptizing it in the blood of the Lamb and still call it Christian. So we come in here to be shaped, formed, transformed by the one interpretive lens that you and I have been called to be shaped by, and that's Jesus. Now, and you say, okay, well, so Sean, for somebody who says, as often as you say, this is a politics-free zone, why is it when something happens in the world, you always have something to say about it? <laughs> well, truthfully, beloved, as your pastor, let me talk to you as family for a moment. The answer to that question is for two reasons. One is this, if the church of Jesus Christ, if the church of Jesus Christ is silent about the biggest events happening in the world around us, if we are completely silent and say nothing about how to interpret the world and the shifting sands of the world, then the church becomes absolutely irrelevant in this place. And secondly, the other reason is this, my calling my, the reason that I, that I think God put me on this planet is to, out of a heart of love, shepherd our collective attentiveness toward the good shepherd so that constantly when you and I are being sabotaged, hijacked, uh, mind jacked, soul jacked by every pundit on each side, left and right, then you need somebody to say, have you checked this with Jesus? Have you thought about Jesus? So when we have life unfolding all around us, we must remember like our ancient sisters and brothers 
We're called to be a holy nation, a priestly kingdom, taking our cues only from one and one alone. So that is our then, that is our if then, and that is our then now, because it matters now more than ever, but that moves us toward the final movement of our table, our movement toward the table today. If then, then now, now what? Now what? You know, on the night that he was crucified, there's a reason he took the bread and cup. He said, as often as you eat this bread, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that I came into the world for a purpose, to be broken. I came here not to protect myself, but to break myself for you. I bore you up on eagles' wings. I have been broken. And if you want to follow me, you must be willing to break your heart for the things that break the heart of God. So as often as you eat this bread, remember me. And he said, this cup, I, this, this cup, I want you to remember that I came to shed my blood for the salvation of humankind. I came not to preserve myself, but to empty myself out. And if you want to be called one of my followers, you must, you must say yes to a lifestyle of emptying your life for one another. This is why Paul, why Paul said, Listen, have, this, have this mind. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or manipulated, but instead he emptied himself and became obedient. Obedient like a slave, even a slave on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the end, the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. So Paul says, and Jesus says, and Moses says, and Peter says, and, and, and I say, if we call him Lord, we must make of our lives the same thing, broken bread and poured out love. Today, you are invited to this table. You are invited to come. And i got to tell you, people ask, what's the, the answer to the fragmentation of the world around us? What's the answer of this highly divided nation in which we find ourselves? I'm going to tell you, my, 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 my gut tells me that the, the answer is not found in any policy. It's not found in any person. It's found in what this table reminds us of. It's found in the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And, and, and he is the head of this church. And we are the body. But beloved, if the head is moving one direction and the body moves another, we've got a problem. So when he says, eat this bread, drink this cup, and you remember me, he means literally you are putting the body back together. You are remembering one another in a dismembering world. So as you come to the table today, remember, be fed, and live. Most glorious God, we, we stop for just a moment in humility to thank you for the table before us. We stop long enough to consider the mystery that the broken bread and the poured out cup is more than just ritual. It's an invitation. 
Will you show us what it looks like to, to not just take the bread and take the cup, not just receive the grace, but to relinquish it for a world in desperate need for it? Even as we eat this bread and take this cup, remind us today of our identity in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life.